know, we're in a series. How many of you all uh, have been here with us the last two weeks? If you have, raise your hand. Amen. Good. Uh, how many of you have received one of the handouts for this morning? Raise your hand. If you don't have one of the handouts and you want to follow along, raise your hand because we have some folks that are prepared to get those in your hands right now. I want to give you the opportunity to be able to follow along um, with what we're doing today. But we're in a series talking about lordship. This is actually the third week, but it's uh, last week we started answering a question. So this is part two from last week. Does that make sense? Week three total, but part two from last week. Uh, we talked the first week about what is lordship. And then last week we began to answer the question of why lordship is necessary. And we determined that there are four reasons why lordship is necessary, but we only were able to cover two of them last week. And so the two that we covered last week were these. The reason that lordship is necessary, number one, is because lordship settles the position issue of your life. And that's where you have to decide who is going to be number one in your life. The position issue. Who is going to be number one in your life? You or God? And you really can't go any further until you settle that issue. Who is going to be number one? Number two, Lordship settles the, the permission issue of your life. Who has a right to my life? Who am I going to allow to work in me. How am I going to be influenced? Today we're going to tackle these last two. And the first one that you're writing down is this. Lordship settles the profession issue. Of my life. The question there is how do I live my life? Because once you settle the lordship issue... It's no longer talk, but from then on, that decision grows legs and obedience becomes your action. I want to start by talking about who, who was it or who is it that asks questions concerning lordship. And the, the first one of those, you'll write this down, would be the Lord himself, Jesus himself. Ask this question, and I want you to, to look with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 46, 47, and 48. And this is Jesus speaking when he says, Why do you keep on saying that I'm your Lord when you refuse to do what I say? Anyone who comes and listens to me and obeys me is like someone who dug down deep and built a house on solid rock. The person that builds a house on solid rock obviously is the person that you want to be because this is the person who has settled the lordship issue. But he asked the question, why do some keep on saying that I'm their Lord when they refuse to do what I say? And verse 47 explains something for us. It explains to us the three, the three steps to lordship. This is Jesus himself saying that if you're going to make me your Lord, there are three steps that are involved and all three are necessary. And the very first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to come to Jesus. It's there. It's listed in verse 47. You have to come to Jesus. That means he's not always chasing you. 
Some of us are content to live our lives for ourselves and just worry about things when we get convicted. We spend our lives allowing the Holy Spirit to have to chase us because we don't chase Him. If you want to settle the Lordship issue, the first thing you have to do is get to the place in your life where you get by that and you say, I am desperate for Him. I'm going to chase Him. I am coming to Him. He don't have to keep chasing after me. I have made a decision to serve Him. It's not Him still trying to come after me and, and, and cause me to believe in Him and to repent and to serve Him. I've made that decision. That part is beyond me. At this point now, Lord, I am coming to you to sit at your feet. And the second thing is, he said, if you're going to choose me as Lord, you'd have to listen to Jesus. Come to Jesus and listen to Jesus. Making a conscious decision to come to him, sit at his feet, and now listen to what he says. And the third one then becomes the action step. And he said, and then you'd have to obey Jesus. They're all listed right there in verse 47. Those of you preachers and teachers that are, that are trying to dig out transcultural truths from passage of Scripture, right there in verse 47 is your three-point message where he says, anyone who comes and listens to me and obeys me is like the one who dug down deep on a good foundation. There it is. So the Lord Jesus himself asked this question concerning lordship. And the second answer there who asked this question is this. It's a little longer. If you're writing it down, it goes like this. The people who profess Jesus as Lord, but don't do what he says. This is the second group that asks questions concerning lordship. People that profess he's Lord, but they don't do what he says. I want you to look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Here's Jesus speaking again. He says, not everyone who calls me their Lord. Listen to this. Not everyone who calls me their Lord will get into the kingdom of heaven. What's that mean? That means that not everyone who says they are a Christian really is. A lot of people find it from time to time in their life a popular thing to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Because at that point, in that particular moment in their life, it's popular to say so. But Jesus isn't about winning popularity contests. Not everyone who calls me the Lord will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only the ones who obey my Father in heaven will get in. And on the day of judgment, many will call me their Lord and they'll say, we preached in your name. And, and, and in your name, we forced out demons and we worked many miracles. But I will tell them, I will have nothing to do with you. Get out of my sight, you evil people. What? These are people who are preaching in Jesus' name. Forcing out demons and working miracles. That says to me that even though my salvation is secure in Christ, as long as I want it to be, that if I'm not very careful, if I don't listen to the Holy Spirit, and if I allow myself to get away from the Holy Spirit, there could come a place where I would no longer hear his voice and I would not respond to conviction. Matthew 7, 13, 14 said, enter through the narrow gate. 
Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. A lot of people can find that one. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Only a few find it. Why? Well, the key word is find. Only a few are looking. A whole bunch are going through a wide gate. A lot of people like wide gate churches. Let it sink in. Wide gate churches are usually a lot fuller than narrow gate churches. You don't have to find a wide gate church. And I'm not talking about big churches as the bad being a bad thing. I think that church, that good churches should be great and huge and, and, and many, many of them are. You're sitting in one that's on its way. Being big is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about though that when we water down, when we, when we take away from the necessity of what it is going to require in this issue of lordship, when we make it too easy, when we simply say, hey, everybody here pray a prayer and then live however you want to live. Just come back every so often. That's a wide gate. You don't have to go in search of a wide gate. A narrow gate says, listen, you're going to count the cost. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to die to yourself. You're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus the rest of your life. And it's not, and it's not, it's not going to get easier. Because the more you learn and the more responsible you become, the more difficult the load will seem to bear. But you'll always be able to because you're bearing it for Jesus. And he'll give you the Holy Spirit and the strength to do it. But just getting, just calling on the name of the Lord and saying a prayer and then going on about your life is not going to save you. There's a lot of people that have prayed prayers and felt emotional things and were responsive to emotional things and particular uh, services that they were at that never really made a commitment to Christ. Their life was not changed. They're not saved. They're not on their way to heaven. And sometimes they don't even know it. Over 50 million people in America profess Christianity, but very few of them make a difference in society. There's three truths from Jesus' teaching right here. You can write them down. They're listed. They're one, two, and three. Saying the right words will not get you into heaven. Because the devil knows the right words. Doing good works won't get you into heaven. That's what that passage just said. Number three, obeying God's word is the only thing that'll get you to heaven. So you have three classes of people. There are those that don't profess Jesus as Lord and they don't do what he says. Then the second class are those who do call him Lord and don't do what he says. And the third class is those who profess him as Lord and they do what he says. And that third group are the ones that Jesus used as an illustration in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, when he talked about the wise and the foolish builder. Verse 24, 
Anyone who hears and obeys these teachings of mine is like a wise person who built a house on a solid rock. The rains poured down and rivers flooded and winds beat against the house, but it didn't fall because it was built on solid rock. Now, anyone who hears my teachings and doesn't obey them is like a foolish person who built their house on sand and the rain poured down. The rivers flooded and the winds blew and beat against the house and finally it fell with a crash. There's only one major difference between the wise and the foolish builders. I think a lot of times that we, we, we want to look at this and we want to think, we've always, and we've been taught to think that this was talking about sinners and Christians. Sinners don't build on the rock and Christians build on the rock. I, I think there might be more going on here than that. I think that what, what might be going on here is people, both groups who claim to be building, both groups who claim to be Christians, But one is building on a solid rock and one is building on the sand. And when the storms come, one stands and the other crashes. And the difference there is this. The only major difference between the wise and the foolish builder is obedience. I'm going to tell you all something. Most of the problems that we have in our spiritual life are a direct result of disobedience. You know, and we're not ever going to experience real spiritual growth and success until we become obedient to the word of God. I'm going to tell you something about this issue of lordship. I've got to tell you, I'm so glad to see all of you today. Well, one, one of two things either happened. Either, either number one, the weather was good and you hadn't been there the last two weeks. And so you didn't know what was going and you showed up. Or number two, you have been here and you're like, I want to dig in. So I, I believe it's that second one. But I'm going to tell you something about three weeks now of digging down like what we've been doing. Lordship will push you right to the edge of yourself. And then there is a decision to make. And uh, here's, the, here's the sad thing about it for a lot of believers. You've been to the edge lots of times, but you never jumped. Today could be different for you or it might not. Some people will suffer through this message today. Quell the conviction the best they can and go on about their lives. But others, when faced with this issue of lordship, will stand at the very edge of themselves and say finally today, that's it. I'm jumping in. I'm all in. I'm going to just fall in to the chasm of lordship. And in doing so, I'm going to die to myself. I won't die. I won't even be hurt. I'll just die to myself. That's what we call jumping into the, into the full obedience. Because partial obedience it isn't obedience at all. It's just convenient. 
Did you know that there's even wrong types of obedience? Write these down. One and two, wrong types of obedience. Number The first wrong obedience is selective obedience. That's when you determine when you're going to obey. And the second one is situational obedience. That means the situation determines when I'll obey. And I wonder how that it grieves the heart of God when people approach him that way. And they say, God, I'm going to obey you, but I'll decide when and the circumstance will have to be just right. How many of your marriages would last if you entered into the covenant that way? I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife from this day forward to having to hold sickness and health, richer for poor, till death do us part. And if you say that and you really mean that, then that means that. But if they're just words and you're smiling and you're thinking about cake and then as soon as things aren't going like you thought they were going to, and one or you of the other reminds the other, hey, wait a minute now. I thought we were in this until death do us part, regardless of health and financial circumstance, and I thought we were in this thing. You're like, well, now, yeah, I said that, but, but I had some conditions going in. I said all of that until death do us part as long as I get to determine that and as long as the situation is right. But it didn't happen like I wanted and so I can't be true to that commitment. That's the way some people treat their relationship with Jesus. But there's no negotiation in lordship. It's everything or nothing. There's going to be a lot of people surprised someday when they stand before God and, 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 the, and, and they're going to hear the words. I, I, it's not going to happen to us because we're not going to let it. But a lot of people, they're going to stand there and they're going to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, what do you mean you never knew me? He's going to say, I never knew you. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. And the last lordship Thing, the last thing that Lordship settles is the possession issue of my life. Who owns the things of my life? First of all, what does God own? Look at Matthew 25, 14. The kingdom is also like what happened when a man went away and put his three servants in charge of all that he owned. What does God own? First of all, there's a long line on that piece of paper for you to write this. Are you ready? Write down the word me. Plenty of room for you folks that forgot your glasses today to write me on that line. Me. What does God own? First of all, God owns me. Two reasons why. First of all, because he created me. And secondly, because through the cross, he bought me. There's two good reasons. I mean, how would you feel if, if after you made something, then you had to buy it too? 
then you double own it. And God says, I created you and then I bought you with the life of my own son. I double own you. Means there's not anything you can do to justify holding on to yourself. Even at your best, you can't get close to double owning. He has complete control over my life. God can do anything he wants because he owns me. It's difficult stuff, but it gets worse. Secondly, what does he own? All my possessions. You say, okay, preacher, you've been going for three weeks now without having to talk about this money thing. Now, why are you going to start meddling now? Just leave well enough alone. You've already got me upset. S.M. Lockridge wrote a book years ago. He said, Christ's lordship is based on his ownership and his ownership is based on his lordship. Listen to this. God did not have to put his signature on the corner of a sunrise because nobody else is going to cause the sun to rise except him because he's the creator. God didn't have to put a laundry mark on the edge of a meadow because he's the owner. Didn't have to carve his initials in the side of the mountain because he's the owner. He didn't have to put his brand on the cattle of a thousand hills because he's the owner. He didn't have to take out a copyright on all the songs that birds sing. He's the owner. People paint a beautiful picture. They always write their name down in the bottom corner because they want you to know who did this. And God's like, hey, I'm so good with myself that when you walk outside and you look up at the most beautiful blue sky that you've ever seen, I don't have to write God down in the corner. I did it. God is so secure in himself that he does not need you to acknowledge his creation for him to know that he did it. He created it. He owns it. Verse One of Psalm 24 said, the earth is the Lord's. Now listen to this. And everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Some people are like Dennis the Menace that Sunday. He watched his daddy hand a dollar into the offering. And as as they were walking out, Dennis passed the preacher and his mama was horrified because she heard these words come out of his mouth. He said, preacher. What you going to do with the dollar my dad gave you today? There's a lot of people that have that same problem. They struggled with Brian this morning when he shared with us about trusting God. When that when that bag came by, man, they were trying to they were trying to get on their phone. They was trying to find something to read. They was trying to find somebody to talk to. Anything to ignore that thing coming by that reminds them. That God is saying, hey, this is worship too. I liked you singing and I'm glad you clapped your hand a couple times. But this showed me that you're willing to give of yourself. A lot of people want to treat God like he's a waiter at the restaurant. If he treats us right, 
if he blesses us and we slip him a tip. But you don't tip God. Let me illustrate this point. How many of y'all have children? Small children. Little children that don't have any money at Christmas. And they want to buy gifts. Are you with me? So mom and dad, you get, you give the little one the money and they go buy you a present. At Christmas, you open it and you are surprised and you're excited. And that child takes so much pride in what they bought you with your money. Huh? The only thing the child did was make a decision about what they were going to purchase with your money. Uh Uh-oh, some of y'all way ahead of me. Huh? There are a lot of immature believers that complain and debate tirelessly about tithing. But don't get shaken up by 10%. It's not about 10%. It's 100%. Don't get bent out of shape over 10. God's not asking for 10. God requires 100. And he's going to give you back 90. So that you can make decisions about how you want to spend it. And that you can brag to your friends about what you bought with your money. That he knows was his. That he gave you on loan. You don't give your tithes, you pay your tithes because you owe them. It's quiet, but that's true. Can you think of, of anything more ungrateful for God to give us everything we have and then we would gripe and complain that he commands us to give 10% back to him just so that he could cause us to be generous so we could be a part of what he's doing in his kingdom. He's doing it for our own good. That's the part that we don't understand when we talk about people that don't tithe, that they're under a curse. And you say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Well, it's not that God's angry at them. It's just, can you imagine how you'd feel about your child if you gave them money to buy gifts and then they just hoarded it all in their own pocket and never bought or gave or did anything with it? And you're trying to teach them a lesson about being generous and sharing. And they're like, they don't get it. I, 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 I tried to give them money for doing a job and tell them to be nice and to help somebody else and do and do this fundraiser for underprivileged people and all they do is just hoard this up and that is Christians who don't tithe. That's good preaching this morning. Juan Carlos Ortiz wrote a book called The Call to Discipleship. He says, the Bible says the kingdom of God is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of real worth, he sells everything he has to buy the pearl. He says, I understand that Jesus is the pearl of great price. And we as humans are the merchants. And when we find Jesus, it costs us everything. Because Jesus has happiness. And he has joy and peace and healing and security and eternity. And man marvels at such a great pearl. And he says, I want that. How much does it cost? And the seller says, well, it costs dearly. And he says, well, how much? And he says, well, it's very expensive. And he says, well, do you think I could buy it? And he says, well, yeah, anybody can buy it. Well, 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 how am I going to buy it? And the seller said, well, it'll cost you everything you have. 
Okay, I'll buy it. So the seller says, what do you have? The buyer says, well, I've got $10,000 in the bank. Oh, say, I'll take that. What else do you have? Well, not much. I have a few dollars in my pocket. Okay, he'll take that too. What else do you have? Nothing. Where do you live? I live in a house. Okay, I'll take that. My house? Well, if you take my house, I'm going to have to sleep in my garage. Oh, you have a garage? I'll take that. Well, if you take my garage, I'm going to have to sleep in my car. Well, how many cars do you have? Two. Okay, he'll take those two. Well, now he's taking everything. I don't have anything left. Well, are you alone in the world? Well, no, I have my wife and my kids. Okay, he'll take those. He's going to take my family? No, I'm left alone. I have nothing. Oh, no, you have you, and he'll take that too. I told you it would cost you everything. So he says, now here's the deal. You can use all those things, but don't forget who owns them. And when I need any of those things that you're using, you've got to give them back without hesitation because they're mine, they're not yours. The greatest test of lordship is this question. What are you going to do with your possessions? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Jesus knew that this was going to be the difficult test. He said, God God knew that, that the last thing that we will give him, the last thing we will give him will be our money. So that's why he said, test me in Malachi. It's the only place he said, test me or prove me. I'm about to start wrapping this up, but let me go just a little further. Let me give you a story. Ivan the Great was a Russian czar, 15th century. He was a great man of war. He was so consumed with conquering the world as a single man that he forgot to get married. His advisors gathered around him and they said, you are amassing this huge kingdom but no, you're not going to have an heir to leave it to. You have got to get married and start producing children. He said, well, I don't have time to find a wife. Y'all go find one for me. So they went down to Greece and they found the daughter of the king of Greece and they came back and they said, we found a wife for you, but there's one problem. He said, what is it? They said, if you're going to marry her, you have to be Greek Orthodox. He said, well, do you think she'll make a good wife for me? And they said, yeah. He said, well, then I don't mind. I could become Greek Orthodox. And the king of Greece is thrilled because now his land isn't going to get invaded. He's going to make a treaty with Ivan the Great. So the church sent a tutor. And Ivan and 500 of his closest men, which were mighty warriors, were all trained in Greek Orthodox religion. Finally, they went to Greece for the marriage. But before the marriage, they had to be baptized into the Greek Orthodox Church. So thousands of people have gathered to watch these 500 mighty warriors and Ivan the Great be baptized into the Greek Orthodox religion. But they realized there was a problem. The king realized this isn't going to work because... You can't be a warrior and be a member of the church. So they called a a diplomatic meeting together and they said, what are we going to do? And they came up with a solution. When the Greek Orthodox priest would baptize the men, each one, just before they were baptized, they would take out their sword and lift it high above the water so that they would be baptized all but their sword. And history calls that the unbaptized arm. 
Everything was Greek Orthodox except for their weapon and their fighting arm. I wonder today how many unbaptized bank accounts do we have in our church? People that said, baptize me, but hang on a minute. Let me get my checkbook, my debit card. And I'm going to hold it above the water. Because I'm going to be baptized into all of this except my money. I will give God my soul. I'll give him my future. But I'm going to have a hard time giving him my money. So we think sometimes that that if we just go to church and we say the right words and we and we sing the right songs, that that's going to be enough. Jesus said there's going to come a day we'll stand before him. People that have professed the words, have done good ge- deeds, have, have sung the songs, but they didn't obey. And on that day, they're going to hear the saddest and most terrifying words they've ever heard when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, what do you mean you never knew me? Let me go back to our illustration of marriage. How many marriages end because someone entered into the commitment, leaving something in their life unbaptized? And so down the road, though intentions were good, they reach a place where that they have to look at the other one and say, I don't know you. How many times have I heard that in my counseling where they say, we just grew apart? That means they never knew each other. We just fell out of love means they never loved each other. You say, now that's not fair, Pastor, because I really did love that person. You loved that person to the extent that you knew about them. But they or you withheld something in the baptismal marriage process that at some point when the times got really tough caused them or you one to look at each other and say, I don't know you. Oh, you get ahead of me sometimes. You're way too smart. On the day of judgment, the person who says, what do you mean you don't know me? I sat in one of your churches every Sunday. I read one of your Bibles. I gave money sometimes. I I taught. I worked. And he will say, you know, you never really entered into this covenant with me. Because you held something out of the water. And I don't know you. I know a lot of you. I know 75% of you. I know 90% of you, but I don't know that unbaptized portion. And it's not just money, folks. Money's where we stop because it's the hard one. But I'm going to tell you something. Some of you are going to deal with this today and the money's not going to be an issue because some of you tithe every week. You have no problem with your possessions, but you can't give up your family. 
You can't give up your health. You can't give up your job. The unbaptized arm is the person who can't pray the nevertheless prayer. They pray the prayer, oh God, save me, heal me, keep me, bless me, keep all my people safe, do what I need, don't let nobody get hurt, don't let nobody, don't, don't let us go broke, don't let nothing happen. As long as you keep everything good, Lord, we're happy, we're serving you, we're in your house, we're paying our tithes, we're, and then, and then the first time that tragedy or, 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 or something hits, you back up and say, well now God, you're not keeping your end of the deal, and God's saying there is no deal. There is no deal. The, the, the deal is a covenant. And the covenant is simply this. You surrender to me 100%. I save you. Then you belong to me. And you live or die based on whether I want you to. And you're rich or poor based on whether I want you to be. And you're healthy or you're sick based on how I need you to be. Because you belong to me. That's lordship. And that's a tough message. Are you standing on the edge? It's hard to fall on in, isn't it? It's hard when you're faced with doctor says you're not going to live. Well, that ain't up to the doctor to decide because I fell in one day and I belong to God to live or die. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. So I will live or die based on what he decides is best for my life. You, you can't be the person that prays for healing and if you don't get it, you get mad at God. You don't belong to you. It's tough stuff, folks. It's tough stuff. We're getting better though, aren't we? He's either Lord of all or what? He's not Lord at all. Right? Lordship law number one. But lordship law number two. If Jesus is the center of my life, what? The circumference will take care of itself. I want you to look at the last handout. The Lordship test. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Two-thirds down. Recognizing the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life and my desire to obey Him in word and action, I choose to seek His kingdom first in all areas of my life, including finances, and rejoice in the promise that He will meet my needs. And it has a place there. I will continue to tithe or I will start tithing. That's all that it says there, but it needs to say more. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, here's where it is. This is the manipulation part. Here's where He gets everybody to sign this and... and and to say, I'll start tithing, and then they turn it in, and then he has it, and then he can start saying, hey, you said, no, I'm not going to look at this. I don't want this. I don't want this. 
You're either going to continue to tithe or start tithing. One or the other. Whether you do or not, it's not going to phase the kingdom. The kingdom of God will continue right on. God will take care of his church and all those things, all the needs will be met. I'm not the least bit worried about all that. I'm telling it for your own sake. But I want you to add something. Because some of you, this is very easy. Some of you say, oh, I'll continue to tithe. Let's roll. No, you might need to write in some lines of your own. If the tithing thing is where you bog down, then bog down right there. But if you're past that one, then why don't you write? I'm going to give him my health if that's where you're struggling. I'm going to give him my marriage if that's where you're struggling. I'm going to give him my job if that's where you're struggling. Whatever it is right now that is keeping you from falling off the ledge, then you write that down and say, I will. Give that to Jesus. And then sign it. Date it. Then what, pastor? You remember your consecration check last week? Put it with it. I don't need to see it. I don't need you to come and lay it up here on the altar and me pray over it. I don't need to do that. I'm up here struggling with my own. I don't need to see what you're going to do. I don't have time to manipulate you. I got to stand up here and deal with my own. What is it? What is it in this area of lordship that your struggle? What do you struggle? What is your unbaptized arm? What is it? What's the one thing that you have withheld? And that is the thing that you need to write down today and give to Jesus. You say, I'm afraid. Well, of course you're afraid. That's what control is all about. That's why everybody tries to control because they're afraid of a, if they don't control what the results of that will be. God says total trust and complete trust in me means that you don't have to control it anymore. Give it to me. I'll control it. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of it. Our musicians are coming. They're going to lead us in a, in a final song. And while they're doing that, I, I want you to take this, this lordship test. And I just want you to sit there and read it. Seek his kingdom. These things will be given. Read those things. Read those facts. Read the benefits. Read the reaction. And when you get down to the bottom, fill in for you the unbaptized portion. And when you're ready, just like a couple of weeks ago when we took communion, when you're ready, sign it, date it, and jump into the eternal abyss of complete surrender and lordship. Let's spend a little time in prayer this morning. I'm leaving with that.